We just live right now, man. It's going down, excited for the season. You know, we coming off a playoff win. I mean, you know, we had a couple wins. You're in a lot of trouble, and maybe it's because... Well, sorry, Canada. <laughs> and because Philly sucks. I feel like I fear Boston most of all out of any of the Eastern Conference teams. Nah. Yeah. 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 Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the Brew Hoop podcast. Obviously, this is not Adam Paris, who celebrated the 50th episode a little hard and has currently been in a food coma somewhere in Puerto Rico, I guess. So that's that. I'm Kyle Carr, and joining me is Riley Feldman. Riley, how's it going? I am doing extremely well. Yeah, I think Adam, did he hit us up like two days ago? We didn't know We didn't know he was going to be in Puerto Rico until he must have just hit up the internet connection. Like, hey, guys, I'm really in Puerto Rico. Uh, so hopefully he's enjoying himself. I'm sure he is. And I was actually, so for those who are listening, we were gone two weeks. The reason why All-Star break, I mean, we don't need to talk about the All-Star game. It was somewhat interesting, but we didn't feel the need to really record then and then. Last week, out of I was out of town in Charleston, South Carolina, looking for Chris Middleton's home slash looking at wedding venues. So I've been doing well. I got out of the Midwest winter for a little bit, and uh, even while I was gone, Bucks all they did was win, which is uh, what we'll be getting into here today. Yeah, last week Adam and I kind of decided: is it really worth talking about a waxing of the Washington Wizards and then following up with the win against the Pistons and another win against a subpar, not really good. Philadelphia 76ers team didn't seem worth it. So we decided we're just going to skip that as well. But to follow up again, Milwaukee has continued winning. And just to recap the week in general, Monday, they had a 108-97 win against the Toronto Raptors on the road. That was a marquee matchup and a big win for Milwaukee. They followed it up by winning 133-86 to against Oklahoma City Thunder. And that was without Chris Middleton. It was a boat race if I've ever seen it. And then we are <laughs> According to Sunday night, so this is right after the Bucks, gritty Giannis dominating 93-85 win against the Hornets. So, Riley, I don't know which game you want to talk about the most or even first, but I feel like the Toronto one had the biggest implications and storylines out of it. Yeah, I would agree completely, if only because there were a couple of different factors, right? So you go into the game, you're coming off an OT game the night before against the Wizards. You head up to Toronto. It's obviously like the rubber match. Everybody's talking like, oh, my God, the Raptors have won 30 billion games in a row. Are they going to be able to catch the Bucks? You know, how good are they this season? And I think another thing that for a lot of us kind of going into it was what does this new look sort of like this optimized Chris Middleton. How does he look against the Raptors? How does Giannis look? Are the, you know, is Nick nurse going to be able to come up again with another defensive scheme that keeps him down. And in addition to all that, what if anything was coach Budenholzer going to change from game to game? Whereas we've seen in the past, you know, we've seen the bucks get used to whatever the tendencies of an opponent are in the first game and then do a lot better in the second game against them. It was interesting going to this. Would that hold here as well? And I think obviously given the score, given the situation, you know, really impressive from top to bottom and how much of it you could say is, you know, it's Serge Ibaka going one for 10 or just the starters in general for Toronto, not playing super duper well. I mean, Kyle Lowry, another two for 12, but there is this, you know, a certain aspect of that that comes down to Milwaukee's defense working in the way that 
you would hope it optimally does and you're not having Fred Van Vliet go off and then everybody else is like, you know, the offense is really gumming up. Giannis does the damn thing and so does Chris as well. So I thought from top to bottom, really dominant performance, exactly what you're looking for. A little touch and go through the first half, but you know, the quality, even after a late night the night before, showed out. And it, we haven't had a lot of Raptors fans get into the mentions too much this season, but it kind of felt like going into that game, the if there was a potential for like rioting online if one team won versus the other. And just like every other big Bucks win this year, uh, Bucks get the W and nobody talks about it like it never even happened. So pretty typical in that regard, I guess. Yeah, and I was going to say, not only did they get the W, but it was like after that game, everyone decided to write out Toronto and say, now nah, Boston is the contender in the East. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it went from Philly to Toronto to Boston. If Milwaukee doesn't win the following night against Miami, it might go to Miami, but it was Milwaukee's defense that really stood out. You mentioned Serge Ibaka going 2 of 15, including 1 of 10 from 3, and Kyle Lowry 2 of 12. One of seven from three, including a try to go through George Hill's legs. I yep. don't know what he was trying to do there, but that whole first half, it seemed like offensively, Milwaukee couldn't get much going, both with the whistle, which I will admit was very, very one-sided in the first half, and it started to even out later on in the game. But it, it they couldn't get much going. It seemed like Giannis, they decided to put up that wall to make sure that he couldn't get going. Brooke Lopez was still struggling for three. Eric Bledsoe was kind of touch and go at times. It wasn't really until the bench came in with, you know, Marvin Williams, George Hill, even Robin Lopez. And I think offensively, this was not a good game for Milwaukee, but they hit 30 to 36 free throws, which was huge. They just kept attacking the rim and kept attacking the rim and getting those points in the paint, which I think was the biggest reason why they're able to stay within that game with Toronto. Toronto was shooting pretty well early on. I think Chris Boucher and Matt Thomas had five, like four or five threes in the first half. It seemed like they were just unconscious and couldn't miss. And now it was going to be one of those games where it was like, you've got to be kidding me right now. Like they really can't stop these two guys. It's going to, the floodgates are going to open. But even when that happened, Milwaukee always kept the game close. You know, they went into halftime only down two, which all things considered was really, really impressive. And then the third quarter is really when, the Bucks turned it on. It was still offensively, they were pretty good, and Giannis was getting to the basket, and Giannis was getting those buckets early on. But I just think it was the defense. They just stifled Toronto to the point that they couldn't generate any offense, and forcing a lot of those tough shots from Van Vliet and Lowry especially. Those are the kind of defensive performances in which, yeah, Milwaukee might not have it offensively, and Toronto might have a wall and a defense that can s- limit I don't know if I should say limit or contain Giannis because I feel like that's not really doing it justice. And I feel like Giannis is a lot better and he still had a decent stat line, all things considered. But it was one of those where there was a plan B that I've not seen from Milwaukee against top tier opponents in a while. And not only was there a plan B, but the defense especially was the biggest difference. Brooke Lopez and Robin Lopez and Marvin Williams especially highlighting the impressive play and then Dante DiVincenzo and George Hill continuously fighting for all those offensive rebounds. Yeah, I think when you're kind of looking back at this game and kind of looking through just the stats in general, the one thing that really jumps out, one, Marcus Gasol was not available for Toronto, which given the way that he stretches the floor, you know, 
he's a little bit hit or miss from three, but he's still a threat, the size, things like that. The Raptors were essentially forced to play small ball from the get-go because the tallest guy coming off their bench was Boucher, like you said, and then outside of that, it's just a bunch of guards and then running everybody else into the ground. And when you don't have that kind of size, I think this is the perfect kind of example where they have Serge Baca, but past that, they have to play small ball sort of. And the Bucks have the size and they have the ability to, especially getting rebounds. I mean, Giannis goes for 19, 19 points, 19 rebounds. The Bucks have a plus 10 advantage in rebounds generally. And then we've talked previously last year and then going into this year as well that Brooke Lopez is so good rebounding, not because he himself is getting them, but because he's able to take out whoever the biggest guy on the other team is. You take Ibaka out of the rotation, essentially, for going for any rebounds, then everybody else opens up, and that feeds right back into the offense where, you know, Toronto still did a pretty decent job making sure the transition buckets weren't really a strong point, really, like the mainstay for Milwaukee, but it's difficult to keep up against that sort of pressure and that sort of assault that the Bucks are able to put on you over and over again, and I think... Beyond that, just the size in general, what was also interesting, and I'm going to hand it off to you here, was the fact that we've seen, this is, I think, the very first time in a really critical game where Coach Budenholzer went with Marvin Williams over Ursan Ilyasova, and I think that has a lot of implications, not only for the rest of the season, but going into the playoffs as well. So what I thought was interesting was, especially with Marvin Williams getting a lot of the minutes, is he was kind of the guy that sparked a run near the end of the first half. I think Toronto had gone up 51 to 39 or something like that. It was a 12-point lead, and then he comes in, hits the three with a little under two minutes left, and then he gets an assist over to Giannis, and he Giannis is able to get a three, and all of a sudden, this 12-point lead gets trimmed down to only six, and he gets a couple of contested shots, gets a rebound, gets Dante involved. He goes out, but right when that minute mark, then you're able to have Chris Milton hit a three. So then you're down four and then Giannis gets another layup right at the end. It was kind of one of those where he was kind of the guy that in the end of the second quarter, and then especially in the third quarter, he was making a lot of plays. He was getting, he was getting a lot of the cuts and the baskets that you would expect out of Ursan. And I think it was a very vital thing to see. And even though the stat line doesn't show it as much, with what he did, he still had a couple big baskets. He still had a couple moments where that was what the Bucks needed last year, hitting a couple threes in the third quarter, just getting out there, filling in for Giannis when Giannis got a breather. And I think that's going to be something that is this going to be a sustainable thing or is Budenholzer just trying to get him some run and give Ursan a rest to kind of get Ursan more charged up for the playoffs. If this is the Marvin Williams who are going to get in the playoffs. I feel really good about Milwaukee's chances just because at least with an opponent like Toronto or Boston, you need a guy like Marvin Williams who has a little bit more athleticism than Urson, who can kind of stay with Pascal Siakam and Serge Ibaka. And on the Boston side, you can have him somewhat stick with Marvin, not Marvin Williams, sorry, Jason Tatum and Daniel Tice. Not going to be as effective, but it's still a guy that you can have out there with more athletic front courts that Ursan is not going to get. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, whatever he's able to provide on offense, it feels like it's pretty similar to what Ursan provides. Now, the one thing that we have not seen is Marvin getting six or seven put-back attempts in a row like Ursan would do, would do, getting all those offensive rebounds. So it's the only part of his game that I'm a little curious about. But outside of that, 
I think the two of those guys, because the role that they're asked to fill offensively is relatively limited. It's like just shoot threes and occasionally be ready for a cut or go inside to help support another guy inside the paint. Otherwise, you're pretty much good to go. And I think that's been borne out game over game for the most part with Marvin, where, you know, the scoring isn't really there, but that's because we don't need it to be there. Now, like you're saying, on defense, again, I think what people, people, us, whoever's talking about the Bucks, when you're thinking about Marvin and we're thinking about how can we plug in, like, you know, is he really more valuable than Ursan? You, you can't look at it necessarily in like the totality of like Ursan has all these veteran savvy moves. He's like, he understands the defense, all these sorts of things. It's almost strictly a physical limitation situation where if Chris has to, what you're looking for is can this guy hold the line for like three or four minutes, depending on whatever Boonholz's rotations are, but can he hold the line for three or four minutes and not kill us defensively? And I think we've seen at least through these first two weeks and it's still kind of a work in progress because this is a slightly def- different defensive scheme than other teams run. You kind of get used to your teammates' tendencies, what you're asked for. And we've seen games, I think it was even like in the Washington game, you know, there were times where he, Marvin in a sort of like drop scheme situation didn't drop nearly deep enough or didn't show on the pick and roll in a way that you, you would expect like an Urson or one of the Lopez twins to do. And that gave like the Wizards or I think Bradley Beal in specific a couple of easy baskets. And so you're going to have moments like that. But like you were saying, if you can live with that and run him through this, I think we've seen, even if it's like a 10% jump in athleticism, that's a little bit more that you can rely upon to try and get through those three or four minute spans when the starters are getting a, a breather or, you know, for running like an all sub lineup or something like that, where it's just, you can't trust target Urson. You have to go through a little bit more of a difficult obstacle in the form of Marvin Williams. Yeah, I think that's going to be one of the bigger things is hopefully that he doesn't get targeted and kind of the same thing with Kyle Korver not being in the lineup is like, <laughs> there's not a guy that you could target on the Bucks roster. Like you can't look at them and be like, all right, we're going to go after this particular player. And I think the closest you might be able to look at is George Hill and Pat Connaughton. And even yep. with George Hill, he's still crafty enough that he seems to be in the right spots all the time. Well, Pat Connaughton, you just got to do a pump fake and he'll fly all the way to <laughs> Mequon. So <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I think, yeah, I, I think the biggest thing that this game told me was that I still think Toronto is Milwaukee's biggest threat in the conference. I don't think it's Boston. I definitely don't think it's Miami. I think Toronto has the coaching and the personnel to give Milwaukee a very tough seven-game series. I still like the Bucks' odds, but it would be naive and, I guess, insulting to think that this Raptors team isn't Milwaukee's biggest threat. Yeah, they've been so, so good this season. And Siakam has also taken a step forward where you, when you were looking at the Raptors going into the season, obviously the main question is, can they make up for whatever Kawhi's production was? And I, I still have questions over the course of seven games where there were a lot of games last year where Kawhi bailed them out. And that worked really well because Siakam had moments where he kind of came and went offensively, especially where it's like, is he really... Yeah, I hate stuff like, is he up to the moment? But kind of similar-ish to that, and I think he's probably more ready for it this year. And so the question will be, again, not so much the starters, because, I mean, Fred VanVleet could go insane again, and (laughs) that could sink the season, which would be a real downer. But are they going to be able to find somebody else a little bit deeper on the bench, or does like the return of Marcus Hall, who makes like a couple of threes here or there, is that enough to get them over the hump? But I would agree that in terms of, 
how creative they are, how much different experimentation they do. And that's pretty well documented for Nurse as well. I would agree that over the course of seven games, they're probably the most dangerous. And then past that, I mean, you know, it's kind of a you're shaking the dice and rolling them with Celtics and Sixers and everybody else kind of in the playoffs. So I would agree in general that Toronto's still the biggest threat. But this past game was really encouraging for the Bucks, especially to see in the situation coming off the back to back overtime, et cetera, et cetera, to come away with a win. I think that was really encouraging. Yeah, for sure. And thankfully they were able to get a couple days off and clearly that rest paid off as they, as I mentioned earlier, absolutely boat race whack <laughs> the decade, the Oklahoma City Thunder on national TV without Chris Middleton. Again, 133 to 86. I'm still trying to come to terms with that game. I, kept looking at the score because I was up in Green Bay with helping out my wife with stuff. And every time I look at the score, it was just the lead was growing, growing, growing. And then I got to the fourth corner at one point they're up 50. I was like, are we sure Oklahoma City is this good? Because right mm-hmm. now Milwaukee's treating them like they are the New York Knicks. It was obscene. And I get and I know that a lot of it was the Bucks shooting 21 of 45 from three while the Thunder shot six of 35. But it was still it's still shocking at how well Milwaukee played and the fact that none of the starters had to play the fourth court at all. And they, and those bench guys were still laying it on them. I don't know. I don't know if there's much to take away from that game. Just, it seems like everything went well from Milwaukee. Here's, here's what we take away. DJ Wilson got to 12 minutes on the game. If you, if DJ (laughs) was like, and, and that was all garbage time too. I mean, that's a lot of garbage time. And now I'm a little upset that Thanasis did not get to 10 minutes. He got stuck at nine minutes. Uh, in general, whenever you have a total beatdown like this, you, like you said, you kind of look at what was like the extreme outlier. <laughs> and obviously the six of 35 from three for, for your, uh, the thunder would be your extreme outlier there. Um, takeaways. I don't know. Uh, People love talking about Giannis's skill. I think this is right prior to Giannis' skill gate, which we'll get into a little bit later. Um, but no, I think did the this is the issue whenever we do these. I have to pull it up. So the Bucks also beat them. It was a closer game in the first game that they played this season. But you know, I, I think this is again another situation where you come in. The Bucks already played the team. They played them tight, and a combination of shooting really well and kind of already understanding a little bit an opponent's tendencies. I mean, you're able to survive like a two of 11 night from Brooke Lopez and it doesn't even matter, for example. So I think that's indicative of not only how strong the starters were, Giannis with the 32 and 13, obviously not even have Chris Middleton out there. Dante goes out seven points, another six rebounds, pretty good for him, but then all the bench as well. I think this was both the dominant from the starters and indicative, probably more so than a lot of games we've seen this season, of just how good Milwaukee's bench is compared to other teams, even other, like, quote-unquote, contending. I wouldn't say the Thunder are contending, but a playoff team. And so that kind of also wraps back into the difficulty of Budenholzer trying to figure out what is my go-to bench, which we'll get into later. But I think that's probably what it speaks to more so than you know anything like we are overpowering of the Thunder beyond the fact that we just more stacked one through 10 than they are. Yeah, it was definitely Milwaukee was a better team. The Thunder are not bad. They're looking like a playoff. They look like a playoff team. It Again, the shooting was an outlier. The first time they played, I think that was the first game they didn't have. It was either the first game they didn't have Chris Middleton or Chris Middleton left that game injured. It was one or the other, which made it closer than 
I think the score indicated. And they also had that weird collapse, but it's just tough to look at. It was just one of those where it was just fun to watch. And yeah, this was right. I think it was the same day as the skill gate, which I know Giannis has tried to play it cool and say, you know, I'm just, if that's what he thinks, whatever. But I, we all know that Giannis definitely saw that comment and said, you know, F that I'm going to prove him wrong. And going 32, 13 and six with only taking 20 shots in 27 minutes, I think that made a statement. So he was a plus 44 for the night. <laughs> George Hill was a plus 38. And just looking at like the plus minus, and no one in Milwaukee was a minus, which is very, very good. And then you look at Oklahoma City, and it's like Shea Gilgis Alexander was a minus 36. Uh, there are some other guys that are like minus 38. Stephen Adams was only a minus five, so good on him. Um, but yeah, it's just Milwaukee from one to 10 is so much better than Oklahoma City, and hitting threes makes a difference. So. I don't know if there's anything more that we need to talk about that game, Riley. Not really. And I think we can transition pretty easily to not much to say about the Hornets game either, except it was an affront to God. It was a midday game that you would expect. It was ugly. There's a lot of bricks. Everyone not named Giannis didn't look great the whole game. But when you have Giannis, that makes a difference. And he had, a, I would say he had a pretty good game. I don't know. Just yeah, uh, <laughs> just lightly. Put it lightly. It was a pretty good game. <laughs> just a very quiet ho hum. Forty points, twenty rebound game in thirty five minutes, and I think it was more the thirty five minutes in which he had to. It probably could have been more if Budenholzer could trust the bench because it seemed like when he was out, the bench could not hold the lead whatsoever. And yeah, neither team was there's like there's nothing notable about this game except that Giannis surprisingly wasn't affected by his nap so good on him yeah I think the main thing that was notable and we probably would have talked to this about this last week had you guys recorded the week before is this game going into it I had seen a little bit more discussion about people noticing that Giannis has done a lot more and you know I, I think I should give a shout out I believe old resorter and the rapid recap of today's game um, he mentioned the fact that when Giannis is set up in the short post, aka like you know, 15 feet from the basket, he might be at his deadliest because he, it isolates an opponent. He can kind of post up there for a second. Either the defense has to commit immediately to doubling him, and then he still has the space with the other four shooters to find another guy and then kick and then maybe get a three pointer. Or if the other team is going to be content with leaving him one on one on an island with a guy. Today, it was comical the number of times that he either just decimated P.J. Washington because Washington didn't have enough size or Bismack Biombo. He just used his footwork time and time again to either like <laughs> dream shake the guy, go right through him, kind of get a, a quick step and then go for the dunk. And part of the difficulty with this game is saying that Charlotte doesn't have nearly as much talent or, you know, as the Bucks, obviously. But even then... The fact that Giannis was able to take over, and it's not even just the dunks. He, you know, I, th- I don't think he made a three. I'd have to pull it up real quick. I don't think he uh, one for four, so he did make a three, but it wasn't the threes. It was more so here he is working in the mid range. Chris isn't out there to help kind of solidify things. Eric essentially disappeared, so it's gonna fall all on Giannis, and he answered the call on both ends of the floor, and especially on offense. It's been really interesting that he went to those kind of moves a lot more often. And I think it would be good for him and good for the team if 
because Boonholzer is willing to let players kind of freewheel for a little while out there, let Giannis do that. Why not? I mean, it, it, it doesn't hurt for a couple of possessions. He gets comfortable with fadeaways. He gets comfortable working on his footwork in the post. And it also gets him used to working in situations where there is pressure in that exact position. And he's able to kick out and find guys instead of having to, all right, I'm going to stand, you know, past the three point line, 30 feet away from the basket wait for everyone to set up and now I'm going to charge forward where then he's forced to make a boom, boom sort of decision. And if he's moving, he's falling, he's maybe running a guy over, then you're leaving it to the refs, you know, different interpretations or kind of this fast motion pass. I think that's a lot more risky than what he did today. And so if he becomes more comfortable in that all for the better, we saw how well that worked for Kawhi Leonard last year against the bucks. If that's an option, when the offense comes up a little bit, you know, I think that's a fantastic outcome of this game and the final, you know, 22-ish games or whatever. Yeah, it, it's one of those where he, I think he's intentionally working on it now. It seems like Milwaukee's got a playoff spot. I think they've got at least a six seed wrapped up. They're on their way to 70 wins. I think right now it's more of a, I'm going to test this out because we have the cushion. We're not going to lose ground in the playoff standings. And I this was the type of game where nothing else is working. No one could buy a basket to save their life. No one. Wes Matthews had two threes, and that was it. Like, Giannis had a three. Brooke had a three. George Hill had a three. Pat Connaughton had a three. Sterling Brown had a three. The team was 7-31 to 31 from three-point land. So <laughs> there was not going to be any open looks for three. And Charlotte, yeah, they're not as talented, but damn, do they work. They make you work for buckets, and that's something that I especially notice in if they can get out of some of their bad contracts, they're they're pretty they're going to be set up pretty well. But with him getting those fadeaways and without Middleton, there was no one else really to rely upon to kind of get those mid range shots. Eric Bledsoe wasn't a hundred percent according to Budenholzer at the end of the game, which is why we saw a lot more George Hill. Um, you know, none of those other guys really have like a mid range move or get look for those shots in mid range. Bledsoe kind of does. Wes Matthews kind of do if they can get it off a of pump fake. So it was one of those where, you know, you just give it to Giannis Alon, try and do some fadeaway sh- jump shots. You give it to Brooke Lopez and you want to bang down low and hope that he gets a couple foul calls. And I think another thing that's important to note is Giannis and Brooke combined for 13 of 16 from the free throw line. And I think that's going to be something to look for also. I mentioned the plan B, and we'll talk about it as well later on. But I don't know if Brooke Lopez is going to get a shooting touchback at any point this year. So if he can go back to early Brooke Lopez where he's just going to bang you down low and get buckets that way, that works for me. Yeah, I thought that was the only other thing that I was going to point out if you didn't was there were a a couple of times possession-wise where – it's not even in transition. It's like Brooke Lopez doing his usual thing where he's posted up or, you know, kind of like sit out on the corner three and, you know, Giannis or whoever kicks it over to him and the opponent, because they're so used to him just committing the three, he's kind of changed it up a little bit this season where, okay, I'm just going to drive and like either go for the dunk or go for the layup or kind of do my, what I've done in the past, instead of a traditional post-up, it's almost like he's a seven foot cutter, which is hilarious to watch, but also super effective because opponents, I think at this point are necessarily used to that. So yes, if he's going to continue to struggle in a relative sense from three, if he's more comfortable driving, <laughs> which is strange to say for a seven footer, given his size and his, his height, his weight. But if he's comfortable doing that, 
that would make life a billion times easier, not only for him, but again, for the offense where it just gives you something a little bit more reliable than always having to take the threes where we, we, you know, all three of us have talked about in the past. It can be difficult. I'm sure mentally when everybody's missing threes, like, yes, you can force yourself up to keep shooting threes, but it, you might want to do something a little different. And so it was encouraging seeing him do that as well. So that would between Giannis post moves, mid range moves and Brooke again, flashing here and there, the ability to go in size. Th- th- those are the two things I took away from this game. Yep. And the other thing I took away is I really, really, really hope we don't have an early afternoon game ever again because that is not good basketball to watch, folks. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking through here. The last the so we have a two PM game against Dallas at the end of March. And then we have oh, wait, a, Phoenix as well is gonna be three in the afternoon. Oh, really? Oh, that's awful. It's on the road in Phoenix because it's 5 o'clock here. Oh, uh, that's awful. Right. Yeah, I kind of – and then also Boston, 2.30. So we got a couple, but the real key is making sure that doesn't happen in the playoffs, and I think generally that only really occurs the first round because there's so many games going on that somebody has to take a early afternoon. So, yes, I agree. Avoid, <laughs> avoid the afternoon games as much as you can, but if we happen to get one of the playoffs, I'm sure it'll be against a bad enough opponent that it won't matter too much. Hopefully crossing my oh, fingers. Hopefully. Well, we are going to take a quick break and then when we get back, we are going to answer some of the questions that you guys sent us via Twitter and the brew hoop comments. So enjoy these ads and we'll be right back. Okay. So we asked everyone to ask questions to us because again, with, the Bucks just steamrolling teams and winning and instead of trying to fire off hot takes, we needed some other content. So we asked you all for questions and I think I'm just going to start off with an easy one. Kevin Gesme had asked us, is Giannis the most dominant player if he doesn't get an app? And initially I would have said maybe he isn't, but after today, I think that's still a resounding yes. I think I would agree 100%. Here's the thing. So we don't have to get too much into Giannis's nap routine because uh, we're a podcast <laughs> about a fan site covering this team. Uh, as much as I appreciate uh, talking about his naps as important as they are and his like ritual before the game, I think there is a danger in putting too much stock in that where it's like, uh, you know, he has to have this or we're going to have a tough time. Obviously I'm taking the question way too seriously, but I think he's the most dominant player with or without a nap. So uh, that's what I, and in a way, when you think about it, isn't the eight hours of sleep roughly that you get the night before, isn't that one long nap? So that would be my counter to that question. <laughs> Thank you though. Well, Kevin, he's also a new dad and as a new dad, you don't get sleep anyway. So yeah, he's it, been awake for like weeks now. He's been awake, just straight up awake for weeks. So, I mean, it's impressive what he's doing, <laughs> but you, you and, one of the post games, <laughs> he was like, I'm just tired. <laughs> I'm going to get some sleep. And you know what? And you, that was, would you say that's the closest you felt to Giannis? Like on a, on a one-to-one basis is <laughs> relating to that point. I have never related to him more than when he said <laughs> that. I'm like, I, I get that. I, <laughs> I understand. <laughs> but yeah, so that was one of our questions. Um, another one that I think we had a couple of these questions, so I'm just going to lump them all into one is what will Budenholzer's eight man playoff rotation look like? What is the best closing lineup? Is there a death lineup that the Bucks can have with Giannis and Marvin Williams involved? So I kind of we got a variety of those questions, so I figured just combine it all into one. 
Yeah, so I'm just pulling up right now. So I'm just going to run through one through eight just based on their average per minutes here, and then we'll kind of work it out from there. So Giannis, obviously at the top. So it goes Giannis, Chris, Eric, Brooke, Wes, Dante, George, uh, Pat. Those are your top eight. Uh, Right behind Pat Connaughton is Marvin Williams. Pat is at 18 minutes a game, Marvin at 17. Uh, And then beyond that, obviously, it's Kyle, Urson, Sterling, Robin, et cetera. So uh, I I don't know if you have a – off the top of your head, top eight. I think you and I would probably both agree that the starters as they are would remain. That's, you know, easy five out the top. Past that, it's a really interesting question. George Hill, I think, is a lock. I think Marvel Williams is also a lock because you need to have somebody who spells Giannis for a little bit. I don't know who to put in an eighth man spot because you could theoretically try to go small and not do it would have to be like some really strange rotations to keep Robin out of the Lopez or Robin Lopez out of the rotation I think so I don't know if you have like a clear cut eighth guy I think it'd be difficult for the Bucks to get down to eight honestly I, I think we're probably going to get used to like a nine or ten man rotation as deep into the playoffs as Bud can go with it I think in the first round it'll get up to a 10-man rotation I think the starters plus Dante, George Hill, Robin Lopez, Marvin Williams, and then one of Pat Connaughton or Sonny Silva or Kyle Corver if he's healthy. I think we'll see that be used, at least in the first round and maybe in the second round, depending on who they play in, how that series is going. But if I had to go with an eight-man rotation, yeah, I would go with the starters and George Hill, so that's six. Yep. I still think Bud would go with Dante just because – he has enough of that off ball. He doesn't need the ball in his hands to be effective. You know, defensively, he can get into passing lanes to get deflections. He skies in for rebounds. He's going to hustle out there. He knows on offense, he can get his, if he can hit some shots, that's great. Otherwise, he's going to look for Giannis. He's going to be cutting. Um, so I think Dante would at least get 10, 15 minutes out there. If, this whole Marvin Williams and not Ursan Ilyasova trend stays. I would go with Marvin Williams. I just don't know between Marvin Williams and Robin Lopez. I feel like it's going to be matchup dependent, but if I had to lean one direction, I think he would. I think Budenholzer would go with Marvin Williams and not Robin Lopez. And I'll only use Robin if Brooke gets in bad enough foul trouble early in the game. Yeah, I, I agree completely. It's 100% depending on who the opponent is. Like, for example, if it's Philly. I think if you are forced to an eight-man rotation for whatever reason, you probably end up going with Robin because of the size. But otherwise, I mean, somebody's got to fill in for Giannis at some point or another, or you're going to have to find a way to like have Brooke out and have, or you know, keep Giannis maybe at the five and then Marvin fills in as a four. So that might be like, we can kind of use that as the lead into the death lineup, quote-unquote, so to go with. But I would agree that, Probably Dante and George are locks just because of how much they've been relied upon and how good they are. Past that, whether it's Marvin or Robin, that's totally dependent on is this a big team? Is this a smaller team? Who's available for them? What kind of you know minutes are those guys getting? And even then, I think the main question is how long does it take until we get to the eight-man rotation? Because I think it took Boonholzer all the way until literally at the death, like staring death in the face for us to get down, down to an eight-man rotation. So it's an important topic to think about. I think it could go a lot of different directions, which is going to be a difficult decision for Budenholzer if he has to make that. But we've seen 
in the past, at least in the semi-recent past, that we're probably not going to get there unless it's a really dire situation. So that's just a it, it, interesting thought experiment, but hopefully, theoretically, hopefully, one we won't have to run across too often. Yeah, I'm kind of hoping that we don't have to wait until your back is completely against the wall and one of your players is so bad at shooting the ball that you can't justify playing him. But yeah. if that does happen, I feel like maybe I it would be possible that Budenholzer might freeze out Eric Bledsoe. Oh, yeah. That's 100%. kind of the thing. That's kind of the one player that I'm looking at. It's like if he doesn't show up, I could really see Budenholzer having him call off the bench or starting him for maybe five minutes, kind of a show me what you're going to prove. And if he doesn't have it, then you go with George Hill and Dante as your two backcourt options. We've seen that so much. I think this regular season way more than we did last year. We've seen Budenholzer's willingness. Now, like you said today with the Hornets game, Budenholzer said that the issue was Bledsoe wasn't feeling well. You know, he just didn't necessarily have it in that direction, which is fine. But I think we've seen this season a lot more willingness on Budenholzer's part to be like, if Eric doesn't got it, I mean, we got George Hill for a reason. Let's just get George out there for a ton of minutes. And so I agree 100%. I think it this this again kind of bleeds into and i can kind of look through and see if i can find some people who sent it. a lot of people sent in questions about bledsoe and you know is he going to be this version of bledsoe that we've seen mostly through the regular season or is he going to be the guy that we've seen in the past i'm still i don't know about you kyle i'm still relatively worried about bledsoe now when he's on when he's doing his thing i mean even today in the charlotte game in a game where he didn't play super well there were times where he drove, he kind of like Euro stepped inside in the paint and scored. And that's something that's really valuable for a guard. And we even see that with like Dante a little bit where he's able to attack the paint and that gives a new dimension. But there are times where Eric just kind of relatively disappears. And we've seen that two playoffs in a row now. And I think if I was a betting man, I would probably bet on him disappearing again at some point this playoffs. And if that's the case, I agree with your point that he's probably the most easily dispensable of the starters, which is really crazy to say for your starting point guard to be like, that's the guy who can, you can get rid of the quickest because you got this guy on the bench. But I think that's just the reality of the situation. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think anyone knows, including Eric Bledsoe himself, if he's going to show up in the playoffs because <laughs> last year we went into the playoffs and we were thinking, is he going to be bad? And then he was good against Detroit and then he was fine against Boston. And then he completely fell apart against Toronto and it's like and I think I said this at the beginning of the year if the progression keeps up then he'll be fine in the Eastern Conference Finals <laughs> and then fall apart in the NBA Finals yeah yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's going to be good but I, I think that's why Budenholzer made it a priority to bring back George Hill is for this exact situation is maybe Bledsoe doesn't have it but you have a guy that you can trust to fill in and do well. And George Hill has played fantastic this year. So we hope that it continues, but I, I don't know what to expect out of blood. So, and I don't think anyone does. And the tough part is offensively. You can see when he's not hitting his shots, if he's still driving a hoop, that's okay. We can, I can still live with blood. So driving to the hoop and not getting everything there because it's, he's still showing that aggression. And on defense, his defense is still really valuable and something that, the Bucks are going to need against a uh, Toronto and against Boston and potentially Miami in having gone Tyler Hero. 
those are guys that Bledsoe would thrive against and use his defensive ability to help Milwaukee. And if he's still driving the hoop and showing that aggression, that's okay. I would be okay with an aggressive Bledsoe because then at least it shows he's still trying. If he becomes passive and timid, then you got to take him out. And this is the double-edged sword with him, right? Because he's so... When he's on defensively, there's a reason why he was all NBA defense last year. I mean, he's really a force attacking opponent guards and either either getting right in their grill, keeping him in front of them, or whether it be Harden kind of recognizing and forcing him to his offhand, or if he he's coming up from behind the guy, excellent at getting up and either denying the shot, even from behind, making the shooter uncomfortable. When he's out there, he helps shore up that middle section, that mid-range section that the Bucks are willing to give up. It's not just this is a totally uncontested shot. If Brooke, or if not Brooke, if Eric Bledsoe is out there and he is playing to his potential, he makes even that theoretically wide open spot for opponents that much more difficult, which is why he's so valuable. But you're 100% right that there's, I mean, and maybe part of it as well is we'll talk about this kind of, we can bring in Chris Middleton a little bit because I think there were a lot of questions as well of what kind of Chris Middleton can we you know, expect to come into the playoffs. And I think you and I, and probably Adam as well, at least for me, I feel more comfortable relying on Chris because it seems like he's really reached his apex within the role that he's given on offense and his comfort level within different shot types, taking over, deferring to others. I'm not nearly as worried there, but even if Chris isn't playing to the top of his ability on offense, that forces a little bit of responsibility on Eric. And if he's, you know, he probably shouldn't be taking threes in general because it's still pretty hit or miss, but it's tough to justify in a playoff game, a guy who's solely defense, because then you're playing four on five on offense and the way that the Milwaukee plays you have to have the four out. And if one of those guys is out, that's a three out and that frees up a defender essentially to go against Giannis and that comes everything up. So I'm a little worried about it. Like you said, it's totally up to Eric at that point. Once we get there, we, you and I can't predict it. Adam can't predict it. Nobody else on Twitter can predict it. He's had moments this year where he's looked really dominant and he's had moments like we did last year where he just kind of disappears. Now, when he disappears now, it's not the end of the world because it's just a regular season game. But is that going to happen over, you know, a game, two games, three games? And once that starts happening, what the hell are we going to do then? And in addition to all that, if George Hill struggles at all, then that puts a lot of responsibility on Chris and Giannis in particular to kind of work it out. Yeah, I'm not as worried with Chris because he didn't have a great series against Toronto. But and I don't want to make excuses, but he was also guarding Kawhi Leonard and being guarded by him at times. It's going to be really difficult to be efficient or productive when that happens. And I think that was one of the bigger issues with Middleton is we haven't seen him take that next step. And maybe it's just the fact that it's Kawhi Leonard. I think that's what's going to be interesting about this upcoming playoff series is most of the time, Chris Middleton might be the second or third best player on the court. You know, if depending on the team, obviously. If you're going against Philly, then... You know, I still think he's second or third. If you're going against Miami or uh, Boston, then it starts getting a little bit questionable. That's when we need him to be that second or third guy on the court. And 
it's more you're right he has found more of a rhythm i think Budenholzer has been less strict on his game and letting him kind of dictate how it's going to work and playing off of Giannison. i think i saw it on raptors hq that you it's you're going to throw everything you can at Giannis and hope that it works. And then you just have to pray that Middleton doesn't find a rhythm. Because if Middleton finds a rhythm, then anything that you try and throw at Giannis isn't going to work. Because you could double Giannis, and then he's going to pass it out to Chris. And then Chris is either going to be able to shoot it, or he's going to pass it to another guy. And then you're completely out of rotation. On the other hand, if you can slow down Chris Middleton, if he's not getting his shots, or if he's not even able to generate looks, then that starts clogging up the lane. And what becomes a five-out, all of a sudden, you're down to four and five, and if Bledsoe doesn't show up, then you're down to three and five, and Brooke can't seem to hit a shot to save his life. And then all of a sudden, it's Giannis and maybe Wes Matthews. And if Wes <laughs> Matthews can't hit three, then it's all Giannis, and we're in trouble. Yep. Yeah, I, and that's why I think it's so valuable bringing that in as well, the the fact that Giannis might be figuring out maybe we don't need to try and set everything up. Obviously, obviously, the guy is super dominant, even from a half-court set where the defense sets up. There's a reason why the guy is on his way to probably win his second MVP in a row. But if we're able to make a slight adjustment that frees things up, and what I'm going to be curious as well, watching probably this next week and over that, assuming Chris is back, are we able to continue to find Giannis in that short post situation and Chris is out there? And what is Chris able to do off of the fact that Giannis is still this like gravity suck on the floor and so the defense is still keying up on him. If that's going to be the case, are we going to be able to find a way to get Chris even more wide open shots? I mean, I was just looking here. Let me look up his, Chris's. So Chris, his shooting splits, just to keep him in context here. I mean, this guy has been out of out of his mind from the floor all season long. So 50.8% overall from the floor, 43.8% from three, which is just madness. And then the free throw line, 90.7%. So, I mean, this is this is... A 50, 40, 90 guy. We lost that in Malcolm Brogdon last year, but we Chris stepped up in a huge way this season. And I think, like you said, it's so much the comfort of now we understand what his role is. He understands what his role is. The question is, like you said, if Eric is out and if Brooke or Wes, you know, they're not necessarily the main guys, is he going to be willing to be aggressive? And if he's in a flow, really go at guys. And we've seen, I think, especially in the past month, him really take over. I mean, the game against Washington, for example, a couple, I think it was two, three weeks ago where he got 50, you know, there've been multiple games where we've seen last year. I mean, he, he had good numbers, obviously all-star season. He stepped forward, I think because of a change in mentality, a comfort. And now the question is over these final 20 into the playoffs. If this thing with Giannis is something that's going to stick around a little bit more, is he able to then adjust off of that? Is that more of a positive for him than even the five out system. I think there's a potential for it to be. So I think it's just a matter of, is he able to get comfortable and figure out what Giannis is doing and kind of work his game into that is the main question. Yeah. And kind of leads into another question that we had gotten. Uh, Kellen Jonathan had asked about the Bucks death lineup. I think there's a question about the closing lineup. So I would think the Bucks quote unquote death lineup would probably be Giannis, Marvin, Chris, Wes and George Hill. Yep. Now, I don't. I I could easily swap Marvin for Brooke just because Brooks' defense has been that good. But I think with the closing lineup, it's probably going to be that same lineup except you swap out Marvin, you put in Brooke, 
just because, like I said, defensively, Brooke is too good not to have on the court to close out the games. And his rim protection, especially, is going to be something that I think is going to be the biggest difference between last year and this year for Milwaukee. We have not seen this level of defense for Brooke Lopez last year. And if that can continue and he can make that all defense claim, I think that's going to be the key difference for Milwaukee. I think that's the line that Budenholzer would ideally go with to close out the game just because he may not be able to hit a shot, but he can still threaten to hit a three every once in a while and still can stretch out the floor enough. Yeah, I would agree with that being the closing lineup. I think so the difficulty with so maybe change you can you can kind of respond with your own definition. So like the death lineup in my mind is generally a smaller lineup that just really boat races teams, right? Like so when somebody says death lineup, what do you what what definition comes to your mind? I think the issue is with the Warriors death lineup when that whole thing started. They just had guys that who were really good, like a couple of Hall of Famers on the team. Yeah, they had a couple of Hall of Fame shooters, and then you add Kevin Durant, and they were just a team that, in a blink of an eye, they were suddenly up 20 points. And I think with Milwaukee, I think Milwaukee's quote-unquote death lineup isn't necessarily that. It's just more, you're not going to score on this team for long stretches, or you're going to throw up a lot of bad shots. I think that is... It's kind of more of a suffocation, plague doctor-esque kind of death where it's just like a slow, painful, we're just it's just gonna take the life out of you type of death lineup. And that's why I would say maybe actually now I think of that, I think I'm gonna swap Marvin for Brooke, just because when I think about that, you're not scoring on them. And Milwaukee may only score ten points, but you're only scoring one or two. Or Milwaukee could score twenty-five, you're scoring fifteen, twenty at most. So I think that's what I view as Milwaukee's death lineup is just the fact, just more the, I don't care who you have in the court, you're not scoring on us type think, of mentality. I think that's really interesting to look at it that way because I agree 100%. If we're looking for the equivalent of the death lineup on offense, I don't think we're going to find it with this team, which is fine because they're a really good offense and the way that they play functions really well with the roster. But I think what you said right there, Kyle is really instructive. And I, I hope people take that away as when we're thinking of the death lineup, don't think of it as offense. Think of it as the defense and what lineup is going to be out there that maximizes what you're able to do defensively. And I think a hundred percent Brooke is going to be that guy and Giannis allowing him to not have to be the main guy in the middle. You know, he he's used to and excels really well at being the poaching guy. Like he's got the athleticism, he's got the recognition, the basketball IQ to notice or to understand when the play is breaking down, when can I come over and help off the weak side to help either deny a ball, get more contact, get more kind of get my arms in the way, things like that. And at that point, yes, I would say Brooke is probably the guy over that. The only other question mark then is George Hill versus Eric Bledsoe. And I think as valuable as Eric is again, it's kind of matchup dependent, but I think probably if you're talking the playoffs or for assuming wishy-washy, let's just say fine for Eric Bledsoe. I'm not sure if just fine for Eric Bledsoe, even if he's good on defense is enough on offense to justify it. Whereas 
you have this veteran George Hill where, I mean, he bailed us out a lot last postseason. He's been excellent from three and a lot of different areas on offense this season. So maybe you want that veteran savvy out there. So that would be the only other guy. And I think you already said George Hill in that lineup anyhow. So I agree that it would probably go Hill, Matthews, Chris, Giannis, then Brooke. And that's a little bit of a sad indictment of Eric, but that's just kind of the reality of the situation where everything is funneled to the middle. If everything is funneled to the middle, you need to have the big guys who are normally there, there. You keep Giannis and Brooke out there and then offense, everything runs through Giannis anyhow at the end of the day. And so keep them out there, keep them with guys, shooters, keep that as wide open as possible and then make it work from there. Yeah. And I think the tough part is I would love to put Eric on there, but it's just tough to really find a way to trust him to close out a game. And it's not even the timidness and not being able to shoot three. He's just sometimes makes boneheaded decisions where he's driving to the lane and then he takes off and he realizes he's not going to get a layup off. So he kind of just wildly throws the ball somewhere and hopes for the best. And it's like, you know, when you're up five and there's 40 seconds left, you can't do that. So I, I just don't know. Like him and Dante are the two guys where, I would love to see them in a closing lineup. I think when they're on their game, they're going to be ideal fits in a closing lineup. But you can't rely on either of them enough to justify it. And I think if the Bucks were to go with the Golden State style death lineup, then you would have Dante out there. I think it would just be Giannis, Chris, Wes, George, and then one of Dante or Eric. I think it, I I agree that the it's an interesting idea thinking about Dante out there. To me, as good as he's been this season. If you're getting a tight situation, if you got to go with like, this is our go-to lineup, you want to go with the, I don't know, this is always really tough to kind of quantify, but the been there-ish sort of factor, the poise, not saying that Dante isn't poised and everything, but he missed all of last playoffs. He's been really good this season, but we haven't seen him in that sort of situation. And so you take the maybe not nearly as athletic, not nearly as flashy, but better knows their role a little more used to the situation, things like that in the veterans that you already kind of stacked in the lineup and you go from there. And maybe obviously if somebody's injured, then maybe Dante becomes a bit more of an option, but even then it's still, you know, you're definitely flipping a coin there with Dante where he could either be excellent or, you know, there could be some sort of problems where, He's not nearly the defensive stalwart he is, or he has been over the season. The three-point shooting is still a little bit suspect, things like that. Whereas, ideally, you want to keep everything as close to the norm, normal, like mean that you're used to throughout the regular season as possible, even if the situation is a little tight. Yeah, and I don't even know if it's that. Just more, when you have your closing lineup, you want to go with your five best guys, and Dante isn't one of the five best guys, so. He's really good. He's been really he good. good. This we love him on this podcast. Yeah. But Dante's Inferno here. Let's, let's just toss that in so I can find that. We'll burner. just yeah. throw it in there. <laughs> um, yeah. One of the other questions. This came from Carl Chaput on the Brew comments. He asked, who is the biggest challenger in the East? It appears to be Boston to a lesser extent Toronto. Is there any real concern past injury with these two derailing the Bucks' hope? That's a good question. I'd have to. What, what would you think on that? I still think Toronto is Milwaukee's biggest threat. I would say, like, I think in, I did a tweet on it. If we did tiers, Toronto's on its own number one tier, and then there's a small gap, and then you have Boston. And now that I think about it, I think Boston would be its own tier. 
and then it would be kind of a decent gap, and then it'd be Miami, and then there's just a mountain with everyone else. And I don't think, I don't know if I have, again, my real concerns with Toronto is just more that Nick Nurse is going to out-coach Bud, and that Fred Van Vliet or someone's going to have another hot shooting performance, and Milwaukee just cannot recover from it. I think those are going to be the two biggest things that it's just more on the coaching side. Can Bud make changes sooner rather than later? Yeah, I think I probably, so last season I would have said that nobody was a worthy challenger and that was me totally. I mean, we, we have the receipts. I totally, I totally walked over Toronto and Nick nurse. I mean, he still gives off weird, life guru energy so i'm not sure still not sure about that guy but that was that was clearly my point last season i don't know it's really difficult because any of those teams when they're at their heights when they're at their peak could be a challenger i mean even philly we saw in like the again it's really difficult with the christmas game because it's really one off like shooting performance but i think all of the teams have the talent and or the coaching. So maybe Toronto doesn't necessarily have the top line talent to match position for, for position. But I think in general, we would say that over the course of seven games, Nurse might be slightly better equipped than Budenholzer. Past that, I think, you know, I think Stevens has lost a little bit of the shine as like the go to, like greatest coach of all time whether or not you'd be able to out-talent them. It's been difficult the two games against Boston where you get these huge leads and then you blow them. Is that being lackadaisical? Is that anything special the Celtics are doing? I don't really think so, and so that makes me feel comfortable there. And then Philly, I mean, that's the that's a huge... You have, you have no idea. Like, is Embiid going to show up, or is he going to be there just, like, in person but not actually contributing at all? Ben Simmons, his back injury stuff, I mean, that's a huge question mark. Um, and I think it'll be really instructive tomorrow night. So when you guys are listening to this, tonight's game against Miami, I'm really curious because that start of the season, second game of the year, home opener, I'm not sure how much you can take away from that other than it almost mirrored Boston games where you get out this huge lead and then you fall off. Miami's been kind of wishy-washy lately. They were obviously, I think they're the fourth seed right now. So they've been playing pretty well this season, but I'm really curious to see that before I say, you know, none of these other teams can really beat the bucks per se, but I think almost going into this year, I might be a little more confident than I did last year, because if Toronto, like you and I agree is probably the main competitor, they, they still lost a big part in Kawhi Leonard. And if, if they lose that, do they have enough coaching to even overcome that? And I have my questions about that. Yeah, I would say Toronto doesn't have the talent to match with Milwaukee, but they have the coaching. Boston is just, they're not, it's not like either their talent isn't good enough to match Milwaukee. I, they're just like half a step below in both. Miami, I would say, talent below Milwaukee, coaching on par. Philly, I, coaching definitely not, but talent. <laughs> I mean, even with a healthy and being in Simmons, I don't even know if talent-wise it would work because... Yeah, Embiid and Simmons, when they're on their games, are really, really good. But then it's just a significant drop-off to Tobias Harris, and then an even bigger drop-off to the corpse of Al Horford. So I don't think there's anything there. Then Indy, I mean, yeah, it's good that they've had, they've still been this good, 
and they're still you know a top six Eastern team, but I I don't think they're really threatening to get out of round one. If they do, great, makes it easier for Milwaukee. But so I think I am also more confident with Milwaukee's chances in the Eastern Conference solely because they are they do have more talent than every other team. It's just a matter of whether the coaching is going to be an indictment or again if Eric Bledsoe doesn't show up. Which then brings me to the next question, which I know this was frequently asked. Why doesn't the national media respect Milwaukee? Because they're a bunch of freaking haters. Uh, um, <laughs> that's a really good question. I, I So I was writing up my Monday morning piece, and to me what it all comes down to is we still have the shadow of the Eastern Conference Finals, right? We live in this era where what have you done for me lately? And it's not even what have you done for me lately in the past couple of weeks, it's what have you done in the playoffs? Because everything's been kind of reduced. It's it's a very reductive discussion that we're having where none of these one through 82 really matter. Like they sort of matter insofar as we need content to fill the airwaves. But I think the general zeitgeist, the general feeling around the NBA is the fact that the playoffs are the only thing that matters. Right. And so if that's going to be the case, if we're at this apex if we're at the apex of rings and winning, you know, different rounds of the playoffs, that's the only thing that matters. The Bucks are over there. Like they have nothing to really fall back on. Yes, they got to the finals, but most people are going to say, well, you didn't get to the finals. Like you lost and not even that you lost after going up two and oh, and then you dropped four straight. And so to me, I think the disrespect, the lack of respect, the, now, reticence to really embrace Milwaukee as this all-time contender, which through the regular season they've shown themselves to be, ties down exclusively to last year's finals, Eastern Conference Finals, and no more than that, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think it also is more of the, until you prove it, kind of like you said, until you prove it in the playoffs, no one's going to believe you. Because think about Toronto. Toronto had consistently been this 50-60 top team in the East year after year after year. And no one ever had confidence in them. Even last year, no one had that much confidence in them because it's the Toronto Raptors. They always choke. They always fall apart. It was kind of that narrative. And then they win this title. And now people are still giving them the benefit of the doubt. And I think that's kind of where Milwaukee comes into play. It's, you know, nothing Milwaukee has done in the last 30 years would give you any idea that this team is a team that you realistically think is going to contend. It's kind of a show. What have you shown us lately? And, you know, one year they lose in six games to Chicago. Then another year they lose in six games to Toronto. And then the following year they can't beat a Kyrie-less team in seven games, even though they had Joe Prunty as the head coach, which is a miracle they even got to seven games in the first place. <laughs> and then it kind of goes off of that to last year in which, all right, you beat Detroit, whatever. You had this, you won 60 games, cool. You beat Detroit, whatever. You beat, you lose game one to Boston, and everyone's like, yep, there it is. There's the team that, they're you a know, bunch of lame. They're fakes, up. man. They're fakers. Right. <laughs> they're not going to be realistic. And then they crush Boston. It's like, all right, fine, whatever. Then you get 2-0 up on Toronto. And then that's when people are like, okay, this seems legit. And then that game three happens. And I think if the Bucks win that game three. They win the series. Maybe it's not a sweep. Maybe it's a gentleman sweep. But they win that series if they win that game three. And I think that was such a turning point because you lose a close game three. And then you get your doors blown off in game four. And then it kind of brings you to game five. And that's when Fred Van Vliet happened. So then you're going into game six. And then you had that game until the third quarter in which you fall apart then. 
And it's kind of like there were so many margins that didn't go your way from games two through six. It's like that. You had Kawhi going off. You had Fred Van Vliet. Like you had so many other factors. But because you blew that 2-0 lead, everything that you did goes out the window. So it's kind of like that. But if we had, if this was Boston that had this profile that the Milwaukee Bucks do, everyone would be coordinating Boston as champions. We're already coordinating the Lakers as a championship team. And they, record-wise, are much lower than Milwaukee. And point-differential-wise, are significantly lower than Milwaukee. It's... Just one of those that, because of the profile of the Bucks, they haven't proven. If they're not a big market, it's kind of a show me what you've done for me lately, which is also the issue why no one believes in Nuggets, which is also why no one ever believed in the Jazz. And we'll get to the Rockets. The Rockets are kind of that same facsimile in which the image of that team has been tarnished because of past playoff performances that it's going to take a title to overturn it. So I think that's more the issue. And I think it's too boring to say, yeah, Milwaukee's good. And there's no other stories to really talk about. You can only talk about Philly being a tire fire for so long. You can only talk about the Lakers and Clippers for so long. You can only talk about James Harden pooping his pants in a game before things kind of get stale. And I think that's kind of where I'm at and why I think the media doesn't respect Milwaukee is because they're not a team that has that brand that you've always been accustomed to winning. It's not a Los Angeles Lakers. It's not a Boston Celtics. It's not a Philadelphia 76ers. It's not even a San Antonio Spurs. It's the Milwaukee Bucks. And they have this guy that everyone would love to have and wants to try and not necessarily plant that they want to run him out of town. But I think those in the sports journalism industry would be much happier if he wasn't in Milwaukee. And, and I think one more thing on top of all that, I, I really don't believe it falls on Giannis. Like, well, Giannis has got to prove it because I think you win an MVP, you follow it up with a season he has. I, I think it's undeniable. I think in addition to what happened last year, tying it up a little bit wider, if we're zooming out a little bit, it also falls on Coach Budenholzer because he had dominant teams in Atlanta and they crashed out. He had a dominant team last year and it crashed out. And so... He, again, the knock is he develops a dominant, really, really dominant regular season team. I mean, all credit to the guy. He, he He's done it two years in a row now and done it even better this season. The question is, he, even though he's gotten to the Eastern Conference Finals multiple times, is he capable of pushing, you know, pushing the right buttons, pulling the right levers when things get tight, if they get tight, to make enough of a difference with the talent on hand. Now this year, like you were talking, it might not even matter at all because the talent level might be that much higher that even if the coaching disparity is somewhat wide, it's not enough to bridge that gap. And so maybe it won't be a problem. And I think even if you get into, you know, let's say the Lakers are there in the finals, right? I'm not sure if I would say Frank Vogel slash, uh, you know, the assassin that is Jason Kidd <laughs> waiting, <laughs> wait, waiting to take Vogel out. I'm not sure if I'm blown away by those guys. Uh, Doc Rivers is a good coach. I'm not sure if I'm necessarily blown away by him. That's probably more so of a talent situation than Doc Rivers being like out coaching uh, Budenholzer through a series. And so it might not matter whatsoever, but if you're looking generally like why don't people respect the Bucks, I would say the fact that Budenholzer, respected as he is for developing regular season teams, 
he, he has yet to really break through in the way that matters in this sort of discussion in the playoffs, you know, whether it be getting to the finals, winning the finals, things like that. So I would, I would kind of go back to that generally in addition to everything you said as well. Yeah. I did. I did not consider Budenholzer, but that is a huge factor as well with those Atlanta teams, especially it's kind of funny. Cause I would think if the bucks had Rick Carlisle as their coach, I don't think we would question Rick Carlisle's coaching in a playoff series and ask, are we sure he's going to get outcoached by Nick Thurs? Are we sure he's going to get outcoached by Eric Spolstra? Like, are we worried he's going to get outcoached by Brad Stevens? I think with, if we had Rick Carlisle or any, I think he's like the bottom of coaches that no one would universally question. That's kind of the interesting part. And that's why it'll be... With his adjustments, I think in playing blood so less, going to Marvin Williams and not Ursula Leosova, I think he's starting to show some give in being flexible and not having his my way or the highway kind of approach, which hopefully that runs through for the playoffs. All right. So one of the last questions, and this is kind of more of a fun question. Uh, we got it from David Dunn, big listener of the pod. He asked, is the fountain pen thing a bit and what is soccer? So, Riley, I'll let you go first with the fountain pen because I have a lot of soccer I could talk about. So this is this is really much of a downer. Uh, no, it's not a bit. Part of me kind of <laughs> wishes it was a little bit. So we don't need to hash out all again. So why do I use fountain pens? Because they're cool and because I write in cursive. And generally speaking, when you're writing with a fountain pen, you don't have to apply any sort of pressure. It's just it flows, right? So it makes it easier to write in cursive than a ballpoint or a rollerball, those sorts of pens. Uh, I haven't really had a chance to dive into more more fountain pen reviews, but uh, for all my people, all one of you who I'm sure out there is listening, I I picked up a Twisby Diamond 580AL aluminum, and then I also picked up a Pilot Vanishing Point semi-recently. So uh, it is not a bit. It is wholly a actual thing, but the reason is... You know, I like working on my cursive. I like writing quick. I like writing slow. And these sort of instruments, they give you a lot more customization, a lot more ability to kind of swap out parts, swap out different ink colors, experiment with things. And, you know, for me personally, I don't spend a lot of money on like fun, quote unquote, fun things. So like, I don't really have any streaming services. Um, you know, I'll get things like the, you know, beers and stuff like that. But the things that you assume people have outlays for in terms of their money, I don't necessarily have. I'd go to the library a lot. I don't buy a lot of books, things like that. And so this is like my one thing where on occasion I can spend a little bit of money, get this really nice writing instrument. And, you know, I do, I do like a daily journal. I write letters to people. I, you know, write a lot at work. So between all those things, that is why I do fountain pens. It is not a bit though. Sometimes my wallet wishes it was. Yeah. I, I appreciate it because one of the things I don't follow and understand is fountain pens and writing, especially I don't write, I don't read. I spend probably most of my free time playing Pokemon lately or watching a lot of <laughs> soccer. And let get me just say it. Let's get into it. Come on. What's weekend, the soccer thing? <laughs> this weekend was the epitome. For, okay. So for me, I would say soccer is the one sport. It doesn't matter who's playing. I will watch it no matter what. I know some people do that with football. Some people do it with basketball. Hell, some people do it with baseball. But for me, it's soccer. And I, I think it's just the ability to watch different leagues with having like ESPN plus and Fox sports. So Saturday I woke up and watched the premier league 
in the morning, including Liverpool losing three to zero. And that was God, that was an awful game. After that, I was able to watch Major League Soccer. So I was able to watch American Soccer. And that went from, I would say, one o'clock to damn near seven, eight p.m. And it was kind of nice that I can just turn around and I was flipping through channels in the hotel and I found Univision. So I was watching Mexican soccer and it was in Spanish and it was kind of awesome. So I was able to watch that. That was my day Saturday. And then Sunday it was wake up and watch the Bundesliga. So I was able to watch Germany and then took a break for the Bucks game. But then I was able to watch more MLS and then El Clasico. So Real Madrid and Barcelona, another iconic soccer game as well. So I was able to watch that. And then I'll probably after we record this, I'll watch the second half of the Minnesota United game. But so for me, soccer is kind of that sport where I will watch it no matter what, just because it's an easy sport to watch. And for me, it's, I can just like relax. It's easy for me to understand. There's not a lot of intricate like tactics that you need to understand. It's not like football where you need to understand why someone's going to do this passing play and what routes to run and, zone block and all that stuff and while in the nba it's kind of if you really want to get down dirty with it you can but i think a general person can follow the nba and i I think it's kind of the same thing with soccer it's you kind of have an idea what the tactics are because you're going to see if players are going to run harder when they don't have the ball are they going to hold the ball a lot more and do a lot more possession so that was my weekend of soccer and it kind of plays nicely because four madison season is in a month so i'm kind of mentally preparing myself to be engulfed in all the soccer this is this is your preseason right now. What you're going through. This is your preseason. Yeah, I'm pretty much warming myself up so that it's kind of funny because Ford Madison season starts right when most of Europe is coming to an end. So the right when Europe comes to an end, it'll be Americans' time, and then the European Championship will be in the midsummer and the Olympics. So it's going to be, and that's I think also why soccer is so great is because it's nonstop. Every, every month there's some soccer competition going on. Granted, not the, the quality is not always the best, but it's always entertaining in some facet. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, on top of what is soccer, so I, unfortunately, by weird chance and fate, I follow the Houston Dynamo for some reason. And so following them a little bit, I haven't really got into, like, overseas soccer all that much, but kind of rounding back into David Dunn's question about what is soccer, like you said, Kyle, it's very free flowing. It's you don't have to really. It's a pretty simple, like get the ball into the net. Like that's it's sort of like basketball in that. Yes, everything has this really simplistic end goal, but it's even more simplistic because it only happens like three or four times a game in like a you know relatively high scoring game, whereas it can even go not at all. And so, what I would suggest if you're David Dunn, if you're listening, if uh, David Dunn twenty one, if you're listening. I think he's based out of Arizona and because I know he goes like whenever the Bucks are in town for the Suns. So I know like Phoenix Rising, for example, like a, a yes. USL championship team. They were really good last season. I think if you go, I went to a couple of games when I was in Germany, like even as somebody who wasn't really huge on soccer at that point. You know, it, it's really quick. It's always moving. Like it's 45 minutes. There's no break in the action relatively unless the ball goes out. But even then it's only for a few seconds. There's no commercial breaks, things like that. Hour and a half, it moves within that hour and a half. And again, you don't have to be this tactical expert. You don't necessarily need to know exactly like what is this guy trying to do here. It's relatively self-explanatory. And that makes it pretty entertaining just to even have on in the background because you don't have to pay necessarily attention the entire time. 
um, things like that. So I, I'm not nearly as big of a soccer fan as Kyle is, but I understand the appeal and I, I share it quite a bit for the teams that I follow. And even like I said, with the MLS season, just turning something on just to have it on, for example. Yeah, I follow way too many teams, but Phoenix Rising is they had a promo with Dollar Beer Night, and I swear they went undefeated every time they have that. So also another reason to go check it out. <laughs> um, but yeah, those are the questions that we had. So we thank everyone for sending those over to us, and we will move over now to our miscellaneous area. I will start because I have a film review with it being the end of Black History Month. I figured let me watch the most notable black featured film in the face of mankind and that is coming to america i got emma to watch it for the first time and honestly it's one of those movies that even though it was made almost what 20 30 years ago it ages pretty well eddie murphy is a genius arsenio hall was great i don't it's one of those you can kind of quote it you understand it it goes pretty quickly as well um if you haven't seen Coming to America, 100% would recommend it. It is on Amazon. I'm giving it a 10 out of 10. It, it, I was just, I had not watched it in years, I believe, until this previous weekend. So, it, like I said, it just holds up really well. And I think the cast is pretty great as well. And it just, it kind of, it's a comedy, but it's, it's not like the kind that's going to like have you on your knees, but it's still, it's just like the, I don't want to say smart funny, but it's just one of those you kind of have to pay attention. Like, it's not going to have like a blatant punchline. It's going to be more than subtle things that happen. So, yeah, nine out of 10, 10 out of 10. Love the movie. So my my two questions would be this one before going into it. What would you have rated it? And two, has it inspired you to potentially get the coming to America Giannis Zoom freak ones? So I probably would have gave it an eight going into it just because i i always remember watching it growing up and it was one of those movies that i would always watch with my parents so always it's kind of like has a soft spot in my heart as well but seeing those yana zoom freak one coming to america edition especially the first one i would love to buy it but i also know i look at my bank account and it's going to be like <laughs> no you can't don't do this now if someone wants to buy it for me i will not say no you're a dad now. You have to make like responsible decisions, like not buying the Zoom freak one coming to <laughs> coming to America. Right. <laughs> that was the tough part. It was because I was pregnant and it was coming out. I was like, "Oh, this would be awesome!" And I was, and she was like, "Did you realize we're gonna have a kid in a couple months?" Right? I was like, "Yeah, I know." Now here's here's the final question: What if you got also Sterling a set of Zoom freak ones in the coming to America? Would that blunt Emma's anger and the fact that you, you dropped no, all that money? It would it would probably reinforce like why are we spending this money <laughs> all right good to know all right it so would I, more issues than anything else well we'll set it's, out if it's just for me it's more like the it is my own purchase that i decided i just can't buy other things but if i buy that and another set then it's going to start veering into now you're just throwing money away we don't have to get can't too wear it he's not walking <laughs> We don't have to get too much into parenting, but it is true at that point. When, I would assume, I don't have a child, but I would assume once you have a kid, almost every decision, if it's like a personal decision, is like, uh, are you taking money? <laughs> are you taking money directly away from the kids? So I'm assuming that if you just walk in with a fresh pair of Zoom free coming to America's, I can imagine it not being a good look. So I think I would advise to you probably hold off for a little bit until it's not nearly as tied up directly with uh, your newborn. 
Yeah, that's where that's what the Christmas list is for. That's what your Christmas <laughs> birthday list is for, and hope for the best. Yes, amen. I agree. All right. So yeah, that was my film review. It was great. Now we didn't have a chance to talk about this last week because you were gone, but we had a large vulture talk that needs to be discussed. So, so much. So I'm much leaving vote. it for you. <laughs> what is the situation with Giannis's long-term contract? Giannis sent it to Kumpo. Giannis. 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 We got a lot of vulture talk this week. You're right, Kyle. And not even just this week. We have three weeks worth, which is why this is probably going to be an hour to two hour long segment. So <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. I think I'm just going to run down what we have in the outline, and then I'm going to let you choose where we go from there. So let's just point for point. You got this for me. Warriors using wagons to get Giannis? Question mark. Raptors kid with a sign? Question mark. Exclamation point. Question mark. Raptors fans of the pod want to get the number one ranking, which we'll see if they get it this week. Hot new hip hop jumps into the conversation. And then Giannis had a JBL interview where he said he might play with his brothers and who knows LA or Milwaukee. We'll see. So which one of those, which one of those five do you want to jump into? I think the Toronto one, just because I did not realize this, but, I forgot who it was, but someone had tweeted realizing that we do this whole vulture talk segment and now they are hell bent on trying to take the number one spot in which I told them <laughs> you're probably in third place because the Warriors were in first and Masai Ujiri has his own ranking at this rate. <laughs> and I think they are determined to be the number one ranking for vulture talk to follow that up before the Raptors game. There's a kid wearing Bucks gear. <laughs> but had a sign that said Giannis come to Toronto. And I'm just going to say that is, as a parent, that is terrible parenting. I don't know who the parents are, but they need to be punched in the face for that. Like I can't completely blame the kid, but either as a parent, you take that sign down or get the Bucks gear off. You can't have both. You can't wear Bucks gear and then have a sign that says Giannis come. Like, no, FOH with that nonsense. So yeah, I would say the Raptors, aspect we can start with but i don't even know if that's really vulture talk or just the acknowledgement that raptors fans apparently listen to this pod and now are determined to win this award that was the thing i was really impressed that there was so like the fact that we came up with this and there are other fans who apparently listen to the podcast now i'm gonna be 100 percent honest the download numbers would not show that through but apparently it's the case so <laughs> toronto fans if you want to hop on we are more than happy to have you guys for the numbers so uh yeah sure you get the number one ranking this week i thought what you did i don't have too many thoughts about uh <laughs> Raptors kid, Bucks kid. I don't even know. Is he like a fan of our team? I don't. I don't, I don't know. know. That's the problem. <laughs> so I mean, I don't know which way to go with that guy. So Raptors slash Bucks fan kid in Toronto. I don't know where to even go with that guy because I mean, he looked like he was twelve. I don't feel like we're. It's appropriate for us to talk down to a twelve-year-old. I thought what you did. <laughs> <laughs> I thought what you did with the brew hoop account was it you who tweeted WTF get this kid out of here or whatever whatever it was. Oh yeah, that was me. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean I that, that was one. I think that was perfect. So if if you if anybody there is interested, go to the brew hoop Twitter account. Just scroll down enough, you'll find it. It was the perfect exclamation point of the whole situation. So there wasn't anything directly about the Raptors doing anything to persuade Giannis to come other than Raptors kids. So, so I thought that was good content. The other, the other two we'll just hit on real quick here um, with the Warriors using Wiggins 
this was in the fallout of the trade deadline where everybody, because everything the Warriors does, the everything they do, you know, turns to gold. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened. Since and they're out here playing chess, apparently. Yeah, they're out here playing 98D chess, and we're playing checkers, obviously. So I think there was a fallout where everybody and their sisters like oh i mean you know we we like to mock them about being light years ahead but this is a pretty savvy move where supposedly the warriors are going to use andrew wiggins to absorb the the like cap space and then a couple of like first rounders and you know not even glenn robinson anymore just somebody else is going to get tossed into the pile and that's going to be enough and that is in the situation where Giannis lets the Bucks know and is public about the fact that he's not coming back to Milwaukee. And so the best option apparently is going to be trading for Andrew Wiggins and some draft picks, which I'm skeptical about. Kyle, how did you feel about that potential future trade proposal? I just laugh my ass off because, <laughs> again, I think we've talked about this before, but do we really think the Bucks ownership group and John Horace are stupid enough to trade Giannis for a bunch of crappy draft capital and Andrew Wiggins. Like, no, I don't know why any, no one outside of golden state realistically thinks this is going to work because if that were to happen, Pfizer four might be up in flames because there'd be so many pissed off bucks fans doing this. Like, I think that's more what makes me laugh is that somehow, some way, the Warriors are going to con the Bucks into taking Andrew Wiggins, who is an absolute garbage player, with a couple of draft picks who are going to be garbage for a two-time, a soon-to-be two-time MVP player. It just that would be like going into 2010, in which LeBron doesn't come back, and you try and trade Gilbert Arenas for <laughs> and like a bunch of draft picks for LeBron. It's like it's just that idiotic. <laughs> So, so my question, a little bit more serious of this, not even all that serious because I think it's ridiculous either way. Let's say Giannis says he's he's not coming back. He's not signing the extension, right? Like he, he's going to do free agency. Do you think, one, Giannis is the type of guy who even if he does that, he wouldn't pull like an, an Anthony Davis and sit out or like be forced to sit out. He would play. Two, do you look for a package or do you just say, nah, we ain't about that? We're riding this thing into the depths of hell to see if we can get a championship. Which way would you go? Because of the value that Giannis is, you ride that thing into the ground. You make every <laughs> win now move you can. You trade Bledsoe for Chris Paul. You find, <laughs> yeah. you clear up all. You go all in because Giannis <laughs> still gives you a chance at a championship, even if he decides I'm out. Because yeah, Giannis is going to be like Anthony Davis, where he's going to just mail it in. I would still, you would still try your best because you see with Toronto, all you need is one year. And if Giannis wins the title and then deuces out, whatever, I don't care. Do you? <laughs> but you go all in because if you're trading, you're not going to get anything of equal value for Giannis. So you might as well just go down and go down with the ship. Bro, here's the thing, right? We had 50 years between Kareem and Giannis. I'm not waiting another 50 years, dude. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, not waiting for, it. for that. <laughs> I'm right. You are 100% right. I do not care about if it's the smart thing to do. I don't care if it's the analytical, like the right upside with the asset. You do everything you can in that final season. Because I, you know, for everything that Giannis, you know, that 
there's a little bit where it's like uh, we haven't been 100% clear what his future is. I have zero doubts where even if he told the team I'm not coming back, that he would like, you know, he'd you know, trash it out there. Like he would just kind of mope it or whatever. I think he'd give 100% to the team one final run. And if that's the case, you got to do everything you can. I don't care about the trades. I don't care about the draft picks. I don't care about young upside dudes. We're going all out with the squad. It's going to be suicide squad all the way to the end. You do everything you can. I 100% agree. And I think I would hold that position, you know, this season going into next season. I, I like to believe that even with all the pressure of outside organizations or the media being like, well, you got to trade Giannis. I don't think you got to do that because you're a contender. The reason you're a contender is because of this dude push off going into the shadow realm as far as possible, even if that means working with mercenary Giannis for one more year. Yeah. I mean, if we had like Bradley Beal, then okay, sure. I'll entertain trade talks, but I actually, that would probably be the second best thing to happen is Giannis just straight up saying, I'm going one more year and then I'm going to test up free agency and you still have a chance, but I'm not signing a supermax. Then at least I don't have to hear every news outlet say, Oh yeah, Giannis is a come. It's like, yeah, we know. And then I think it was just like in terms of having to deal with the annoying media side of it, it would just be one of those where it's like, I don't have to care because everyone is now well aware of what's going on. We don't have to try and guess. We don't have to do body language. We don't have to see Andrew Wiggins being used as trade bait because we would all know the Bucks are going to go all in. And what happens the next summer is next summer's problem. Yeah, I think here's one more question. So we don't really have to talk too much about the JBL. I think that was pretty. So that was simply like an interviewer for JBL, which I think is a sound equipment company or whatever. It's like Beats headphones almost. Okay. So they she asked like, oh, would you ever want to like, could you envision playing with all your brothers or whatever in like Los Angeles or Milwaukee? Because obviously Costas is in Los Angeles. So then Giannis like paired it back. Oh, yeah. Like it would be really, really awesome you know, in Los Angeles, Milwaukee. So he almost like paired it back, whatever it is. I didn't think of it as that big of a deal. So then, unless you have something else to say on that, the other question I have for you is gut check time. I think it's been a while since we last talked about this. What is your confidence level, like one through 10 of Giannis, like signing the full Supermax, Giannis signing like a shorter one, or Giannis going to free agency? Like, what do you think right now is the most likely scenario? Yeah, I'll answer that question quickly. With the JBL interview, Giannis is also like, it would be, I think my mom would love it. It's like, yeah, Giannis is pretty much just saying playing with his brothers would be great and it would be great for his mom as well. Duh. Ever, yeah, you would, your mom would love that. And I, Giannis definitely values family. So I feel like that's not, it's a no brainer. Um, In terms of confidence, I think I'm at a seven. Be, I, I feel like unless Milwaukee, crashes out the playoffs almost like last year in the Eastern. Con- I I think if the Bucks make the Eastern conference finals, it would definitely make it shaky, but I still feel like Giannis would come back. If they make the finals, I am confident they make the finals. Giannis comes back. If they win a championship. Giannis comes back. If they lose out in the second round, it lowers, but I would still say seven just because I still feel confident in Milwaukee's ability to win the East. So in turn, that would give Milwaukee an edge. And if they make the Eastern Conference Finals, I think that's the bare minimum. Yeah, I think seven seven would probably be about where I'm at. Now, the question for me is, is it going to be a long extension, like the full thing, or is he just going to do like two years to keep his options open, which 
even if he did that, I'm 100% down with because any extra years of Giannis is a blessing. I mean, we've already gotten like, you know, it's going to be nine at the end of this. Like, to have gotten, or is it nine? I have to double check. We've gotten plenty of years out of this. It's been amazing. Obviously, the guys rejuvenated the franchise, rejuvenated like the standing of the team in the entire state, in the city. I mean, he is the sun and the stars of the entire franchise. And so even if it's a short one, I'll take it. I would agree that even if he's looking at it like, you know, am I going to be able to compete? You know, the question so much to me is how much does he care about the endorsements and how much is he going to be able to get more? Like if he goes to, I really can't imagine him going to New York. So let's say he went to Los Angeles. Okay. Two. The other thing would be like, for example, his girlfriend and now the mother of his child uh, is from California. To be honest, I don't know where Fresno is in comparison to like Los Angeles, for example, but maybe there's something there that maybe like, you know, her family is there once. um, What's the youngest brother's name? I can't remember off the top of my head. Yes. Once Alex is out of, because I think this is his final year of high school. Once he's out of there, the only thing that's really tying Giannis's mom to Milwaukee is Giannis himself and Thanasis as well, being in the city. And so is there a possibility that he, Giannis, would be interested with his, you know, his new son, his his girlfriend going out to California? So those those would be the things that would make me worry a little bit. But if it's not so much that, I think if you're looking at it from a purely competitive standpoint. You know, we're going to dominate the East this year. We have every possibility of doing the same thing next year. And then beyond that, as long as he's on the team, I think we've shown the capability of if the Eastern Conference stays generally the same way it is, you're going to have a shot at the Eastern Conference Finals or the Finals almost every single season, a la LeBron for like close to a decade, you know, in the 2010s, for example. So I think we've talked about this. I think other people have talked about it as well. If you're looking exactly at just like a basketball only standpoint you couldn't have asked for milwaukee to do more and then from there it's just kind of like what's his personal preference but i would agree that generally i'm more confident than not that he will come back so yeah he might do like the lebron like two plus a player option thing maybe but i don't think fresno's that close to la either i feel like it's still a couple hours out but we'll see what happens um i'm not too worried but i think the biggest thing now is just if milwaukee just keeps doing what it does and wins all of this is going to be relevant. So I personally hope Giannis signs that Supermax just so I can go on a with it. Yeah, that would be, I, I really do look forward. Like if he signed the full Supermax, I mean, I, I think in my opinion, he becomes easily the greatest buck to ever play. Like, you know, obviously it comes down, hopefully he gets a championship in there. It's tough to argue against that, but given the mediocrity, given the story, things like that, for him to come out of the situation that he did and to commit double down with Milwaukee, I think would be amazing. So Giannis, if you're listening, as I know you do, please sign the Supermax. Do it. Last and Friday against the LA Lakers. A, I don't know if we're going to record after that game, but they the Phoenix. So two and two is weird. But I, here's the thing. Miami, and then you're an L for like that. That is a nightlife undefeated 
death lineup if there is one. I mean, it's Miami, and then you got LA on either Friday night or maybe they go out to Phoenix right away. I don't know, but I'm going to go two and two. I think they beat the Lakers, but I think they're going to have a letdown against the Suns because, again, Miami night life, and then you get the Phoenix, and then you're just all sorts, and it's dry, and you're dehydrated, and it's just going to be a mess. So the, I should disclaimer <laughs> there because I, I believe, unfortunately, Kyle, you might cut out a little bit at the start there. This is obviously a segment where we're predicting the next week. So it's just in case I'll have to double check on the recording to see if it came through. But Miami nightlife undefeated, I think that's 100% something to keep in mind. Now, they, they literally, I'm assuming we'd have to check with Andrew, but I'm assuming they arrived there like you know a couple hours ago. Are they out on South Beach right now? What would you say? Yes, they're out on South Beach. Oh yeah, they, like they are in some <laughs> capacity out on South Beach, Little Havana, as I, <laughs> as we're recording. It's nine. It's about nine o'clock. Yeah, they are definitely somewhere on the strip on Biscayne Boulevard. Now I would so that'll we'll, we'll come back to that in just a second. But I would say for my record. I'm going to go three and one. I think they will survive Miami because Miami has been struggling a little bit lately. I like to imagine Giannis is already in bed because he's just such a tired guy. He didn't get his nap today. Um, LA would be the one that's difficult because they are the other presumptive favorite and they're also a very good team. And the last game against the Lakers was, I mean, it was fun. I would say from like an objective standpoint, that was probably the most exciting national se- or national TV game of the season. So I'm looking for a repeat. Um, I would say if there was anyone they were going to lose, I would pick that one. So I would say maybe three and one with a loss to the Lakers and everybody does some hand-wringing. But I want to come back around because prior to the podcast, when we were talking about Miami, we, we, I don't think it was even prompted. <laughs> you just said Sunday Miami nightlife remains undefeated. You don't have to go into the CD details or anything, but is there any particular reason why you might know that the Sunday night Miami nightlife remains undefeated? Let's just say this. I was 22 (laughs) years old when I went to Miami. It was like late March, early April. Yes. And as you would expect 22 year olds to do, you just go out in the town I'm, it was kind of. I was there for a "quote unquote" student org business conference. Oh no! The most ironic part. <laughs> so <laughs> the expectations were already out the window. But let's just say anything you would expect a twenty-two-year-old to do at like PCB or what's that other like popular spring break location? You, think of your typical spring break location uh, I, and put me in Miami. <laughs> that's all i gotta say so that is how i know <laughs> so are you are, are you trying are you trying to imply then that a couple of you know 20 something year old dudes with literally millions of dollars might also be t- be tempted to hit up that nightlife is that what you're all trying i'm to saying imply? is don't be surprised if chris middleton pat Connaughton, and dante look a little rough on monday <laughs> We'll be keeping a sharp eye out for that TNZ footage. Of- I mean, maybe, maybe not Chris Middleton now because he is also a father, but definitely Pat Connaughton and Dante. Yeah, no, they are going to be. They are the guys most likely to look really rough the following morning. I want to. No, I don't think the Lopez wins would either. Maybe Sterling Brown as well. Like, there's some, there's some dudes on that team that this is not an ideal time. 
we need somebody to step up because was it Chris or was it OJ a couple of seasons ago that the TMZ footage came out and he had sunglasses on inside the crib? Because I remember it was like Chris, OJ, oh, yeah. and whichever Plumley brother we had at the time. I and think Greg Monroe. And, <laughs> and Greg, yeah. So I'm curious. I, I think that's a pretty worthy crew you just lined up. My question is, who's going to be the guy that goes out with the sunglasses? To me, it feels like Pat is probably in the leading position there. I don't know if you have a different take before we wrap up the pot on this point. I'm pretty confident that it would be Pat out of all people. (laughs) Right, Pat. Well, we're hoping you're enjoying yourself, Pat. Uh, And hopefully we don't need to rely on you too much against Miami, but enjoy yourself. It's Miami's an awesome city. and It's great this time of year, especially. So good for you guys. It it is. It is. (laughs) But yeah, I think that we're going to end it on that as this has completely gone off the rails with my upbringings of college. Not as good as Adam driving through Louisville pitch black, uh, gripping death's wheel, but, (laughs) (laughs) but we do appreciate everyone listening. Uh, Make sure to subscribe, comment, give us five stars. If you give us four stars, I I mean, you might as well just give us five stars. If you're not giving us five stars (laughs) to give us like, I feel like if you give someone less than five, you might as well just give them one. Like, I don't know why there's even <laughs> one through five. Just go five. Yeah. So thanks for that. <laughs> follow us on Twitter. Uh, you can follow us each on our own respective individual Twitter profiles, along with the Brew Hoop account, in which we're probably going to continue feuding with the Rockets page because they are a bunch of whiny babies over there. And <laughs> otherwise, feel free to. We will talk to you next week. And thanks for everything. Mm-hmm.